Welcome to Fine Music Radio's second podcast of Book Choice Teen. Now, before we start, I need to set the scene. We're doing a recording with a group of people wearing masks and socially distanced. So we had to put safety before sound. And as a result, we've had to record some of the dialogue while staying faithful to the original feel. So if you hear a difference in levels and sometimes the sound isn't that perfect, I hope you'll agree it's a small sacrifice to make. Back to the podcast. The text is Diamond Boy by Michael Williams, who's no stranger to FMR, as he used to be managing director of Cape Town Opera. Our book choice teens are grade 8 and 9 learners from Gardens Commercial and Herzliya in Cape Town. We are very honoured that the author himself, Michael Williams, will be contributing to this discussion remotely from London. I'm Vanessa Levenstein from Fine Music Radio, and facilitating this podcast is Herzliya Headmaster Mark Faulkner. Hello, everyone, and a very good morning, and welcome to our teen podcast. It's really wonderful to have all of you with us. And Michael, I thank you for joining us and making the time. We um, really enjoyed your book. We look forward to some lively discussion about it. So before we start, the reason that we are having these teen podcasts is because reading is something at schools and more generally we are very passionate about. Um, it's actually our secret weapon. We know that reading improves cognitive functioning. It allows us to be more empathetic, more understanding. It allows us to make sense of the world, to understand identity, to be able to listen, to share. And that's something that Diamond Boy certainly allows us to engage with, the story of someone who had a very different life from the life that we in South Africa have had, certainly at this school, but probably more generally. And so reading allows us to participate in a way that others would not necessarily be able to do so. So before we start asking Michael questions, I'm going to ask all of you keen, eager teens around the table to introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Benjamin Lazarus, and I'm a grade 8 learner from Herzliya High. Hi, my name is Nira Gibson, and I go to Herzliya High School. Hi, this is Taylor Payne from Gardens Commercial. Hi, I'm Cassidy from Gardens Commercial in grade 9. Hi, I'm Wangisani Putalinga in grade 9 at Gardens Commercial. Hi, I'm Shaki Ramad, a ninth grader attending Gardens Commercial High. Hi, I'm Leo Rodinaka from Herzliya High School. Right, let's start the first question with the idea of narrative, of storytelling, of identity. Um, one of the interesting parts of the novel, and I'm going to start at the end, has to do with that creation story, Michael, that um, the Shona creation story. At the end of the first chapter, there's that really interesting idea of narrative as being part of creation. And it's Patson's father talking to him, and it says, one day you will tell the story to your own children, Patson. Think what a fine day that will be. You must always remember that the story you tell makes you who you are. So let's start with this idea of narrative. This is a story coming from the pen of a person, a white person. This is a story of a little boy mining illegal blood diamonds in Zimbabwe in terribly perilous circumstances. How would you respond, Michael, if someone said, what rights do you have to tell this story? Right. Well, firstly, I think what's important is that when I came across the Merengue mines and what was happening in Merengue, it was a story that needed to be told. And the 
enslavement of families on the mines and what the Zimbabwean National Army did to its people and how they essentially murdered them was a story that needed to be told. And it wasn't being told. There was no literature around it. All that we were getting were newspaper reports. And I thought it was really important that the world knew what was happening in that part of Southern Africa. And I wanted to tell that story. And as a writer of fiction, I'm aware of how powerful fiction can be to move and shake people and to enlighten readers and to add to the discussion around what kind of world we want to live in. And after I had written Now is the Time for Running, which was the story of two young brothers who moved from Zimbabwe to South Africa, the book had quite a huge impact around the world. And when I was asked about a second novel telling what happened to young Deer, I felt I didn't want to write another story about that. But I was intrigued by the boy Patson, who I had written into that novel, and his missing leg. And it just felt to me that when I had discovered what was happening in Narenge, that I would make Patson the hero of that story. Now, in terms of narrative, there are many different kinds of narratives that one can use. You can make it biographical, you can make it fictional, and within fiction, there are certain techniques that you can employ. As you mentioned, there is a creation story there, which is very important for Patson's development as a young adult. There's also the use of mixed texts. So the whole story of Sheena and, and Patson is told through, through texts, really. Sort of WhatsApps. I, I think Mixit is sort of gone now, but we would now think of it as WhatsApp. And then there are the style of narratives that you use in terms of a diary. Patson keeps a diary of his own internal world. And that's another technique that you can use to tell a story. And so the book is, is really taken from Patson's point of view. And that's another narrative technique, is that you as the reader get really close to your central character and you see the world through his eyes. You experience the world through his eyes. And uh, so that's, that's the reason why I wanted to tell the story. And that's how I used narrative techniques to, to tell the story as, as strongly as I could. Thanks, Mark. That's very beautifully answered and, um, and nice and fully answered. Let me ask, um, open it to our readers. Any comments, any questions that you'd like to ask on that point or, or any other points? Uh, how does this book differ from any past books that you've written? Well, I mean, I <laughs> I started writing when I was 22 years old. And my grandmother told me a story about a little girl that was found in a cave. Um, and it was called My Father and I. And it was a story of, uh, of a notorious gang of um, criminals that lived in the time of General De La Rey. Do you guys know the song Cours De La Rey? Well, that general uh, was the cause of the Foster Gang, which roamed through Pretoria and Johannesburg and was notorious. Um, and 
my grand was alive at that stage. And she told the story of this little baby girl that was found in the cave. And I discovered that it was the daughter of William Foster who committed suicide with his wife and his gang when they were kept in the cave. And that was the start of my writing career. And after that, I just wanted to write stories about South Africa. I wanted to write stories about young people living in South Africa. So Crocodile Burning was a theatre book. I'm involved in theatre and I was involved in the Serafina tour turned gently to New York. And so that book's about theatre. Uh, and then I wrote a series of crime novels. Um, one of them was set in a high school um, called The Eighth Man. And I had a detective who would unravel the sort of murders. And I looked at particularly South African crime uh, and then told, uh, wrote fictional accounts of them. And then I started moving my interest away from South Africa, and I became intrigued with Zimbabwe because I'd, I'd visited there. My brother had a business there, and I went up and, and visited him on occasion. And so then I started writing Now is the Time for Running, and then followed with Diamond Boy. So this book differs quite strongly from the other novels that I've written. Thank you. Yeah. All of the characters <clears throat> spoke in English for the entirety of the book, except for the brief parts where um, Bobocar spoke in French. And I was just wondering, wouldn't there have been many more language barriers between the characters? Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, I think in Zimbabwe, um, English is the lingua franca, and then there are lots of regional languages. So uh, a lot of the Marenga miners would come from the capitals, like Bulawayo and from uh, Harare. So then English was de facto the language that was used. But you're right. I mean, we, the, the Merengue mines attracted a huge amount of different um, nationalities, not only Zimbabweans, too. There were other people that came from other parts of Africa. Um, but if you're going to, if you're going to tell a, a writer novel about it, I, I'm going to have to use English as the main language. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to understand it. Uh, and so I would indicate that Bobacar comes from Congo and is French speaking by the occasional French word. I used a couple of Shauna words, Grazi, for example, uh, just to indicate that. My American um, editor wanted me to take them all out because she said, well, you know, in America, nobody knows what these words are. And we don't want to have a, a sort of a, um, an index at the back of the book to say what these words are. So could you please keep them to a minimum? So that in many ways, it was also uh, a, a request and an interaction that I had with my American editor when we were publishing the book. Does, does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, good. Um, this question is based more on the writing of the book. Um, why did you feel the need, even though the story was written in first character, to then also add WhatsApp and a diary as his form of speaking to the audience? Very good. So, you know, I think that my experience, I have uh, two daughters and I'm aware of how important their phones are to them. And so I really involved them in this. Um, Ellen Ann is 24 now and Emma is 21. But when I was writing the book, they were teenagers. So I wrote them in. I was like, guys, you're going to have to help me with this mix it. Do you guys even know what mix it is? No. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So mix it is done and dusted, but it was a sort of, it's kind of like WhatsApp. Um, 
uh, essentially. And I, then I, I quizzed both of my daughters and said, right, come on. You know, and they said, Dad, you can have a whole relationship over your phone and never see one another. So I thought that was quite intriguing, um, an idea to, to do that. So that's why the whole relationship between Sheena and Patson is, is dealt over mixed, which I think is, is very real, really. I think, I hope you can identify with that. Do you identify with the fact that he was using his phone throughout, that he had that as a, as a device of communication? Well, I feel that um, she was kind of meant for him to feel a sense of space or freedom. The phone is what we use as teenagers to feel free. But he continued to just lie to her over the phone, which made it completely useless, in other words. Yeah, that's right. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Should this Patson story have addressed how hard it is for most immigrants once they arrive in Cape Town and how most aren't as relatively lucky as Patson? Similarly, the themes of rape, sexual assault and the, objection, and the objectifying of women could have been discussed further in detail. Some much more difficult themes such as these are tiptoed around in your book. Why didn't you decide to really touch on them? I think the book is tough enough as it is. And I think the issues that I dealt with, they are pretty hardcore. And I don't want to stand on a, a box and sermonize. I think it's really important that you don't preach uh, when you write, that you try and create a universe that your reader can engage with, that your reader can explore, that your reader can debate with, rather than telling your reader what you think. It's so important when you write that you show rather than tell. Because in the showing, a reader can identify with it from their perspective rather from the perspective of the omnipotent author. And it's really important that if there are areas in the book where you feel there should be more exploration, explore them. Because as the writer you're writing and creating and structuring a fictional world in order for the, for the reader to escape to and to escape into. With regards to the first part of your question, I had written Now is the Time for Running, which really shows in a really tough way how South Africans respond to query query. And that for me was quite exhausting to write that novel. So I, I felt that I had dealt with that in that previous book and to replicate that for Patson's journey wasn't appropriate really. So I, I wanted to give Patson a different experience to the ones that I gave to, to Deo and Innocent, his brother. So great question there, Leah, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about characters because there's some really repulsive characters. Uh, the, the I'm sorry one. about that. I mean, it's important to have repulsive characters. Um, the wife is absolutely hideous. <laughs> How did you respond to that, people? She was a very stereotypical stepmother character. You know, evil stepmother. Um, it was kind of strange because she was a gold digger who picked a teacher. And that didn't make sense to me. Why did she choose to marry Patson's father? 
Very good. Good question. So I think, you know, one has to also remember that in terms of the narrative technique that I employed, and I'm sure you guys are well-versed in, in literature to know that you can have third person, you can have omnipotent narrator, first person, you can even have second person. So the idea here was that we are looking at the world through Patson's eyes. So he viewed his stepmother in that way, and that was his take on her. He looked at her and, and saw her um, from somebody who had sort of replaced his mother. So he, he didn't have very warm feelings about his his stepmother. Whether she was a good or bad person, we can only know what Patson sees. And um, in that regard, that's how he viewed his stepmother. Uh, and yes, the question about whether or not, if she was a gold digger, why she married a teacher. I think the teacher was really just one step up from where she began, so that she was very quickly going to move on. That was what's happening in my mind. you know, And that's why she was determined to go back to her brother with the hope that she would change her fortunes. Because what happened to the Zimbabwean economy was just that teachers who used to be highly respected and well-paid profession in Zimbabwe were, you know, as you see, were given suitcases full of worthless money, you know. So uh, she very quickly realized that uh, Commander Jesus was uh, was her ticket to success and, and to wealth. Okay, so my question is basically about some of the other wife. Mm -hmm. I'm asking if there's like a different side to it because there's always two sides to the story. Yeah, good. So um, I think I, I can leave that to the reader's imagination. As I said, it, if there was a different side to her, uh, Patson wouldn't necessarily see it or didn't didn't see it or didn't want to see it. So, uh, you know, that's that would be up to you to decide, well, you know, do you feel sorry for her that she was, you know, married to a, a teacher who wasn't able to provide for her? Did you feel that? And that's up to the reader to imagine her world. Hi. So to shift more over to the actual diamond mining side of things, yeah. is there still child labor in Zimbabwe regarding blood diamonds? Yes, and not only in Zimbabwe. I think in, in many of these illegal mines, you will find that um, the use of child labor is very much uh, still happening today. Um, and uh, I think that it's driven by poverty. It's driven by uh, a desire for uh, survival, and so that it's very much still a case. Um, but what, what fascinated me in the Merengue story was that when the army moved in, they quickly realized that they didn't have the skills uh, or the knowledge to actually mine for the diamonds. Remember, it's alluvial mining, which is rather interesting. In other words, it's all surface. Uh, it's not going deep down. So you, you need a certain level of skill to be able to find these diamonds. And um, when they took over the camps, they immediately decided that the best diamond miners were the young children. And, and it was because of the nimbleness of their fingers and the fact that they were able to work much quicker. And so they prized uh, you know, young teenagers uh, above adults because they felt that they had more uh, ability to find the diamonds. And so they were, in fact, children camps. And, and you'll notice in the book when Commander Jesus brings all the 
the children together. There's a there's something very strange about that scene, you know, it's sort of like as Jesus said, you know, suffer all the little children and let them come unto me. And I wanted to evoke that sort of biblical strangeness of, of all the children coming around Commander Jesus and him sort of using them as his eyes and ears and also as his um, bringer in of diamonds. So that was uh, fascinating for me. And unfortunately, yeah, they're still going, there's still a lot of young people involved in diamond mining. Speaking of Desire to Survive and Commander Jesus, um, Sylvia did say that she didn't have a choice in what she was doing with Commander Jesus. She was just, she actually said this, and whether Patson like regarded it as like important or not, she, he didn't witness her saying this, so it doesn't really affect, but that's not the point. The point is that to what length was she like forced to do stuff? Because we don't really know that side of things. Yeah, that it's really interesting for me um, that you guys are fascinated in Sylvia, and and that means that there's obviously something about that character that uh, sparks something in you, whether you feel she was unjustly dealt a, a, a blow. But I I think the thing that really is her downfall was when she poses as uh, Patson's mother in the hospital right at the very end, where we truly see that really what she's after is are the diamonds and that she's become as fixated with them as Commander Jesus is. And, and posing herself as, as the mother, I think, really shows what she is, which is somebody who's only self-serving. Um, and I think that desperation can lead people to actions that possibly they would regret. So, yes, she is probably also fairly desperate in terms of her own survival. So we much about her, her background or where she comes from. But you're right. I think one can also say that if people are desperate, they will do things that are not necessarily seen as moral. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So um, my question refers to the writing process. So did you experience writer's block when writing the book? Because you personally didn't experience that stint's whole ordeal. So did that factor in? It, it, it's a question about, as I didn't experience Patson's uh, um, pain or his journey, did I have any moments of writer's block? Uh, my response to that is how to avoid writer's block is to um, read a lot and to uh, research and to talk to people. And when you do those three things, uh, it feeds you. It's like coal that's coming into the fire to keep you going. So I didn't have any writer's block with writing the story and it, it flowed from me because it felt it had its own energy in life. Uh, what was interesting is I incorporated speaking to some Zimbabwean people. I also had my uh, three young men that I worked with uh, at the Scalabrini Institute, which is uh, an, an institute in Cape Town that deals with refugees coming from uh, Africa. And I would go and interview them on their experiences and learn a lot from how they uh, managed to come to South Africa. And of course, uh, reading uh, around the subject allowed me to tell the story. Um, writer's block comes when an idea dies. And at no point in the story did the idea die. It was something that I had to had to get out of my system, really. The theme of loss is prevalent, loss of life, loss of love, loss of innocence and love. Do you think being artist is not a good do I think? We need hardships in order to grow. Good question. 
Oh, very good. Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Does pain cause growth? That's a good. That's a good question. Because there's a beautiful, beautiful quote that goes directly to that, um, which is the. I warned you when you work in the mines, you're no longer a boy. You come, you have to come through the eye. You are a man. Stop behaving like a boy, Patson. No diamond is a true diamond until it has been cut and polished. The same is true true for a man. No one of us becomes a man without the pain of being tested, mm. polished, and suffering. Mm. Very interesting. I, you know, th- this may be an old-fashioned idea of my own. So, guys, just forgive me. Um, but you know, I think. Men, and, and this is now a sort of a male-female thing, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be shot down with all of this, but I, I feel that all of us uh, want at some point to be tested as we grow into, into adulthood. All of us at some point want to undergo some degree of testing, and that testing can involve some hardship. One can put oneself through an initiation process into adulthood, which is often painful. In, in my days, it was going to the army. You know, uh, growing up in apartheid South Africa, we were all conscripted, and a lot of young men, young boys, felt that they had to serve in the army in order to become men. Uh, and there was this sort of, it was sort of rites of passage, if you like. And I think that in in all of us, there is a moment where you leave your childhood behind and you say, I want to be a woman now. I don't want to be a girl anymore. And that involves physiological changes. It also involves mental changes, psychological changes. And so essentially, this is a coming-of-age novel in that we meet Patson as a boy asleep in the back of his father's car. And in the end we find that he is actually a young adult now, has having undergone an enormous amount and understood that his disability is something that will be with him for the rest of his life. And he's come to terms with that disability and he's determined to put all of that behind him. And, and, and we see him as a fully-fledged young man. And uh, I think that quote that Mark just read is, is really a sort of a, a personal belief of my own, that we all of us want to be tested and proved. Does that resonate with any of you? Do you, do you know what I mean when I say that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah? The themes of greed, power, and corruption embodied by an object are universal. Think of your awareness. Did the text remind you of anything else you have read? I think the, the, the question um, has got to do with the, the kind of pervasive corruption um, the, the kind of emphasis of, of financial or, or, or wealth and uh, how that was prioritized above everything else. Yeah, very good. So I, I can see what you're saying about um, Lord of the Rings, where you've got this character, um, you know, my precious, you know, where he, where he views the ring as, as um, his, his ultimate goal. And, and it corrupts. What's that character's name in Lord of the Rings? Scarlet. Gollum, thank you. Well done, Gollum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and that, and that we see this Gollum as this corrupted individual because his desire for the ring has in fact corrupted him, and I, I think that is a very strong theme uh, in 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 the book. Is that 
everybody's fascination with these stones that can bring enormous amount of wealth and they are just plucked from the earth apparently seemingly easily and can change people's fortunes uh you know and 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 Patson's father warns him he says the guy that found the first diamond yeah was you know so obsessed with this diamond and he bought himself a car and then he crashed the car into a tree and the diamond had control over him and you must never lose control of your own life and in a certain way patson uh to speak to your question in a sense is a little bit like Gollum, i suppose that he allows the diamonds to to take over him a little bit and and it's part of the book that in the end when he finally sees where the diamonds are and, and realizes that he has them that he understands that they cannot have power over him you know so i have a question for all of you did did it come as a surprise to you to see where um uh, arves had actually and the granny had actually hidden the diamonds were you surprised by that in the story did anybody see that coming didn't see it coming but it made sense didn't see it coming but it made sense and the fact that then Arves had actually told Patson all along where the diamonds were and that he had written at the back of the notebook did you believe that did that come as a surprise too that there was one more little note from the grave as it were that was great that was great, that was great. <laughs> okay. I think Carol wants to say something um, I actually got to a point where uh, I thought that he was going to go Home without any diamonds whatsoever. Yes. Oh, that's good. And so then all of this effort was for nothing. Yeah, that's good. The, the sense of hopelessness. That's right. Yeah. So I thought that he was going to go to South Africa with this new sense of uh, hopelessness and then grow from this, but instead he was given the diamonds anyway. Anyway, yeah, that's that's true. You know, when I wrote Now is the Time for Running, these poor two Zimbabwean boys were treated so badly by South Africans. I felt that I had to actually uh, I had to actually give this character something to look forward. So I gave him a, a flat in C point and uh, and going to bishops, I don't know whether that's something that's um, prized anymore, but it was in my day. So I had to give Patson a happy ending. I just felt that I made him suffer way too much. At one point my my two daughters were like, Dad, you, you, you're almost killing Patson over here. Please can we give him a happy ending? We feel so sorry for him. Um, so I felt that I had to actually uh, allow him to have success after all the trials that he went through. And, and were you surprised at the, the way he lost his limb? I mean, his leg, uh, that scene, did, did, was that shocking for you? Did, you, did that come as a, a surprise? How, well, how did you feel about that? That's when I got really emotionally invested in the characters. As soon as that happened, I got super drawn into the book. That's really interesting to hear because, you know, I one of my one of my times up in Zimbabwe, and I just absolutely I was so emotional afterwards was to go onto this field and to see these young men all under the age of sixteen playing soccer on crutches, kicking up all with one of with only one leg and realizing that it was a lot of landmines that had done this and there were these young men playing on this field with such passion and with such joy playing soccer and it just moved me to see that and that was one of the things that I thought you know and that the whole notion that his leg becomes almost like a, a foreign being that's taken him over 
you know, and he calls him Stumpy. Uh, and the, the part of the, the story is him reconciling his disability and understanding that uh, he has to actually not only conquer the lust for diamonds, but come to grips with the idea that he has got uh, has only got one leg. You know, so that's interesting that you. And do you think that's because you identified with his suffering, or what was it that drew you in about that? I definitely didn't identify with it because I haven't experienced anything like it. Mm. That's when I got emotionally invested in the characters. I'm not sure why. Mm. Mm. And and did you did you did you believe his desire to find his sister? You see, I mean that was the other thing where I have a sister and uh, I, I have a very strong relationship with Miranda and and I imagined myself because there's quite an age gap between us. Um, she's about ten years younger than me, and so I I put myself into that situation where if I had my sister missing and what would I do and how would I respond to that? So and that was really important that you you kind of got that familial structure back that he realizes this is his only family now and he has to actually find her um so my question is did you anticipate that they would find each other did you feel that there was moments when they would slip away from one another and she would be lost in the world of south africa and he'd never be able to find her again have any of you read now is the time for running no, no, no. No, okay. Well, you have a you have a treat in store for you because uh, now is the time for running. Is about two brothers, one whom is autistic, and his younger brother takes him into South Africa, and it's the first novel. And there you will come across Patson uh, in that book, and uh, he is in that scene where they cross the river from the Limpopo, um, and what happens there is in fact the main part of the uh, now is the time for running and uh, it's it's a it's a book which is a sort of companion piece and uh, if if you want to return to the universe of diamond boy uh, you can go and read now is the time for running and uh, yeah it's that's i'm not going to tell you what happens in that story but um, yeah it's interesting across the world that now is the time for running is more popular than diamond boy and has sold far more copies than Diamond Boy, uh, which is podcast is going to change that all, Michael. What's that? Podcast is going to go viral and change all of it. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. But but it is interesting uh, that it took quite some time for Diamond Boy to land in South Africa. So I'm very pleased that it's finally landed, and that um, you guys can have the opportunity of reading. Now is the time for running, which uh, is also available in South Africa. So I would encourage for you to just hunt out that book. And uh, it's not as long as Diamond Boy. It's a bit shorter. But um, then you can understand where Diamond Boy came from. Excellent. Thanks, Michael. So um, can we move on to your favorite quotes? What part of the book you thought was worth remembering? And maybe say why you, you've chosen that particular book. Yeah, and Mark, just before you start that, I just wanted to congratulate all of you for, for those quotes because when I read them, I was like, oh, my God, these guys really read the book. They really read it in detail. So I was very impressed with your quotes, guys. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> my favorite quote from the book was, telling a secret to an unworthy person is like carrying a grain in a bag with a hole. I personally liked the quote because it came from experience, and I feel like experience is the best way to learn. 
I was going to do this quick, but you did it, so I have to find a new one. <laughs> Very good. And I, I also have to uh, admit that I, cl- I can c- claim no ownership of that because it's actually a Shona proverb. And I was really interested in part of my research to go and look at proverbs from Zimbabwe and to um, see. Uh, and I was I just I loved that when I came across that. And I just felt that it would be a perfect thing that uh, the teacher father would say to his son because he was a illiterate man. Um, so when I came across that proverb, I was like, wow, I've got to find a way of, of, of weaving that into the book. So well spotted there, uh, Shakira. Good job. Kathy? Um, you said the quote is, he taught me what it means to be a man. Do you resonate anything to do with that? Right, he taught me what it means to be a man. No diamond is a true diamond until it's been cut and polished. Yeah, I think my father, my father's still alive. He's 84 years old, uh, and I owe my my life to to his influence and my worldview to his influence. And um, I think Bobakar becomes a surrogate father uh, to 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 Patson in the end. And I think. Fathers and mothers are really important to to young people. You know, I think they are they play a critical role in forming us. So uh, it's a really yeah. You know, a lot of people when they read my books, they say, "Oh, Michael, you know, you seem to be obsessed with fathers and mothers." I'm like, "Yeah, well, I am because they're pretty important people." And now that I've become a father, I realize just how important they are. So that does resonate resonate with me, Cassidy. Taylor. So my quote, one of my favorite quotes from the book is happily ever after only happens in storybooks, the real life is a bit different. Mm. How do you feel about that? I mean, yeah, come on, I'm going to ask you a question there, Taylor. Do you think that's true? Yes, because the only reason why I read is because the world in the books is way different from real real life. So. That's really funny because the book did have a happily ever after. <laughs> that's true, yes. Well, sort of, if, if, if you can think that the poor young man has to go through his life without his leg, I suppose so, yeah. In terms of the traumatic events that could have happened, it's a happy ending. Yeah, that's true. I take that point. Taylor, do you have anything else? In circumstances where you find yourself powerless, what's all your beast with? Yeah, come on, guys. Okay, what do you feel about that? Do you think that's true, or do you think that's just a writer wanting to... Uh, 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 tote his own importance, yeah. I mean, if you can't fight, um, just, use, just use your words, you know. It depends on your level, so yeah. you're anxiety too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's have some, let's have some other one. Wanky? Um, my favorite quote was, my father always said that a journey should change your life in some way. Well, I suppose that when you have nothing, a journey promises everything. And yeah, I resonate yeah. with this yeah. we are all on a journey yeah. in life. We all have nothing, so... Once we feel content with ourselves and we have reached the point where this is my journey, this is where it ends, we will realize that we have gained something from that journey that we've been on. Oh, that's beautiful, Wanganasi. That's wonderful. I, I completely agree with you. Well done. That is so good. You should become a writer, young, young woman. You, be great. you can articulate. Well done. Come on. I said that to you today. Yes, you did. No, you should. Come on. Well done. Thank you. So my quote was, I know you are going to make it, even though it looks bad now, you're going to feel right. So that quote really resonates with me because sometimes when you're in a situation where you really think it can't get worse, 
there's there's always a way out, um, whether it's just through sheer willpower or perseverance, you can usually get out of it. Wow, that's really good. And something my father said to me, which I, I, I'll always remember, he said to me, son, this too will pass. Good quote there. Well done. Thank you. Um, so I have a question. It's about on page six of the book. It says, it's basically Paxton saying that his father was always right. And it's as if it's like a conversation between them. So I was wondering, why was that put there? Because is it such, was it like a dream that he was having? Oh, why? Because it didn't make sense. Was I yeah, good. Yeah, well spotted. Well spotted. Did you notice that at the very end, the father speaks to him again? So you turn right at the back of the book. At the very end, when he writes his letter to him, right when he's in the hospital, and he says, Father, you were always right. You were always right. So I, I, I bookend that quote in the very beginning and at the very end. And yes, I think that there are times when our ancestors speak to us, you know, when our, the people that we love so dearly uh, that have been part of our lives, part of who we are, that they have a way of speaking to us. And you're right, that comes as a kind of odd thing. And why is it in italics, you know? And, and uh, I, I think that there's a moment there of magic uh, realism where his father is talking to him and uh, he's, he's conversing with his father. Hi. Yeah. Um, yeah. My quote is, in that very same instant, I hated them and prized them. I wanted nothing to do with them, but I wanted everything they could do for me. And this sum, I feel like this sums up most of like humanity in general. Because humanity interacting with, some, with like dangerous things. Because there's so much to gain, but this, but like, it's, especially with Patton here, there's trauma as well. Like, there's so much trauma in that statement. But he still recognizes the possibilities that they can give him and the, the stuff that they could do for him and Rose. Wow, Mira, that's very profound. <laughs> that's really profound, but that is profound. I, I, I hadn't thought about that in that way. And, um, yeah, that's, wow, that's quite an insight, which I hadn't really really twigged. So thank you for that. Thank you. Good. Anything? Leah, you've got that beautiful quote. The enormous flat-topped mountain looms over the city. A huge cloud rides the faraway cliffs, racing down the grey rock face as if driven by an invisible force. If you know Cape Town and Table Mountain, I think it's a really amazing way to start the book. Because... <laughs> I knew it was a book about these diamond mines in Zimbabwe and to, to hear that he wakes up in South Africa in Cape Town in an environment that I knew was really encouraging almost. And it's a really pretty quote. <laughs> ah, thank you, Leah. Yeah, I think, I think we sometimes take for granted our beautiful Table Mountain and uh, it's kind of nice to see it from the view of, of somebody who is not used to it. So I kind of try to imagine seeing Table Mountain for the first time. And um, that was the description I came up with. So thank you for, for picking that up, Leah. Um, Michael, can we take this opportunity to thank you very much for making yourself available for more than an hour? I'm sure that you've, uh, you've had, like we all have, had Zoom calls in chunks. 
but um, it was a really, really fascinating conversation. Um, and uh, you can, as you can see, um, there are lots of questions that we could be teasing out a whole lot more. No, great, uh, guys. No, well, thank you. And thank you to all of you for your time and for your interest and, and for all the work that you've done uh, in preparing for this. I, it, it's really lovely to hear your thoughts. And it's something that I've really been wanting for this book to land in South Africa, because I think as South Africans, we also need to be aware of what's happening on our borders, you know, beyond just our own country. And that is important uh, as well. So, Guys, thank you for the invitation. And Mark, thank you for hosting this conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so Thanks, much. Thanks, Michael. Can I, I also want to thank all of, our, all of our readers. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and, um, and, and some really fascinating quotes and, and uh, questions. So well done. Thanks to Oxford University Press for generously sponsoring us with copies of the book. To the author, Michael Williams, thank you for joining us today. And to all the learners, well done on the hard work, thought and commitment. And thank you to Gardens Commercial Racer Hamid and Hertzlier's Mark Faulkner. And a shout out to our sound engineers from Hertzlier David Watkins and from Fine Music Radio, Ewan Ingalls and Mawande Lobi. You've been listening to a Fine Music Radio Book Choice Teen podcast as part of Fine Music Radio's Book Choice, empirical proof that teens are still reading. Well, six of them are anyway. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Seven. Eight, two, nine. Seven. 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 Se